Howdy, all of life. <laughs> Merry Christmas. It's, we're there. We're in the home stretch. It is coming up on Friday. Um, we have, uh, so this is the final, this is the final message uh, in this kind of four-part series exploring behind the music, some of these really famous Christmas hymns uh, that we, and not just us, but also the world, uh, sings together. And so we have, uh, we, we've learned about the history behind angels we have heard on high and how uh, angels announced the coming of this Savior to shepherds in a field who went and found Mary and Joseph uh, in their... Uh, What happens, like if I were or we were to witness you, you, not the people around you, you, the person with your DNA, if we were to witness you in a moment of joy, what would we see? Like what's happening in you internally? What's going on in you physiologically? What do we witness? What's the vibe? How do you express joy? Okay? Smile. I'm totally on board with that. That's one of the ways. It just, permigrant just comes. What else? You. Tears. Okay. Laughter. Okay, so tears, like, tears are not just for sorrow or for grief, though you can have joy and tears simultaneously. You can be grieving and joyful simultaneously. What else? Fist bump, okay? You're like looking to get that out of you and in contact with somebody else. Chest bump, fist bump, like whatever, what, however you might express it. What else? What do you do? What do kids do? When you like, they're all sat at the table, right? And you, 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 you announce that you're gonna go somewhere and you're gonna do something and you know they're just gonna be out of their minds around it. What do they start doing? Like immediately, like just the activity starts to come out of them. They cheer, they wiggle, they writhe, they laugh, they, they, you lose control of them in an instant. You know, like it just comes out of you. Joy has a way of getting out of you, doesn't it? Like uh, water finds the low ground, so joy finds its way out. That's just how it works. So the background of this song, Joy to the World, Joy to the World, was, it was written by an Englishman named Isaac Watts. 
Isaac Watts lived from 1674 to 1748. He's an old timer. This song was first published, Joy to the World, in 1719. So do the math. 2020 minus 1719, 301 years old. I saw somebody counting on their fingers just now. 301 years old. This is an old song that we have been singing in um, the West uh, and really the, the world over who celebrates Christmas. Now, Isaac Watts was a pastor. He was a theologian. He wrote several books on logic, but he was also a hymn writer. And Isaac Watts wrote and published something like 750 hymns. He was prolific, not quite on the level of Charles Wesley, who wrote somewhere between 6,000 and 9,000 hymns, but 750 hymns is a ton of songwriting. So just to put it in perspective, Prolific bands, the Beatles, 227 published, published songs. A more prolific band even than the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, 422 songs or 477 songs or something like that published. And these guys have been going for 50 years. Isaac Watts published 750. He's known as the father of English hymnody. He's known as the father of English hymns. Now, um, he, he, one, of the, one of the issues of his life was uh, he had chronic health issues, particularly in his gut. And so uh, in, internally, he was, he was always in a lot of pain, and he was, uh, he was very weak. And one thing that added to his weakness as well was that he was a chronic insomniac. If any of you deal with this, you know just the ripple effect that it brings to your life and to your day-to-day when you can't sleep. One night is frustrating. Two nights is really frustrating. But when it's multiple nights a week or many nights of broken sleep over the course of your life, it just messes you up. Now, at 38 years old, uh, Isaac Watts was invited to the home of a wealthy friend, a guy named Sir Thomas Abney in uh, southern England. And, uh, and this guy had an estate, and he had servants, and he had quite a spread. And, uh, and so he invited Isaac Watts out for some R&R, some uh, rest and recuperation at his estate. Um, and because Isaac Watts, he needed to get away. He needed uh, some time of rest. And Watts actually showed up and never left. Uh, in his own words, I came to the house of my good friend, Sir Thomas Abney, intending to spend a single week beneath his roof, and I have extended my visit to 30 years. (laughs) 30 years. Like, we need a host like that right? We need a host like that. We don't necessarily need friends like Isaac Watts. We need a host like Sir Thomas Abney. The room and board uh, that was provided to Isaac Watts uh, and and the care that he received at Sir Thomas Abney's wife's hand, she went by Lady Abney and also her daughter, it, it likely made Isaac Watts' writing career possible and potentially even elongated his life, uh, just lengthened, uh, extended his life. And so though he was suffering, though this guy was, uh, he, he was suffering, he was, he was ministering to people through his suffering, he was also being cared for. And so the care of Lady Abney and her daughter and also Sir Thomas Abney brought Watts joy because he was loved, he was attended to, he was seen, he was appreciated. And it's likely in 
or around this home at the time of this 30-year vacation uh, that he wrote and that he published Joy to the World, which is arguably the most published and sung song, Christmas song in the world. It wasn't written as a Christmas song, though. It was written as a simple hymn of praise. This was not written to celebrate Christmas. It was based on almost all of Psalm 98, a psalm that um, is titled, Make a Joyful Noise to the Lord. It was written through parts, uh, based on parts of Psalm 96, which was our call and response time this morning that Trevor led us through. And it was also, there's a portion of it out of Genesis 3, the, the third verse, where he says, no more let thorns infest the ground because the Savior has come to, to bring his blessing as far as the curse is found. That comes out of Genesis chapter 3. So even Psalm 98, uh, verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. You're going to hear these kinds of themes in this song. Sing praises to the Lord with the, the lyre, a modern day equivalent might be a guitar. With the lyre and with the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in a particular way with righteousness, and he'll judge the peoples with equity. He will be a fair judge. He will be a just judge. So the, the lyrics behind this song, verse one, joy to the Lord, or, I'm sorry, joy to the world, the Lord is or has come. Let the earth receive its king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. In dire situations, there is no better news than to hear that help has come. In dire situations, no better news can be heard than to know that help is on its way or help has arrived. Just this uh, last week on Thursday in northern uh, Nigeria, about 350 uh, schoolboys were kidnapped by an Islamist group called Boko Haram. You've probably heard of Boko Haram. They're, they're kidnapping lots of young people. They're slaughtering people. One of their weapons of choice is a machete, so you can let your mind do the work there. Absolutely vile, absolutely evil. What they'll do with these young kids is they kidnap them in villages, is they'll turn them, they'll harden them into child soldiers. And if they resist, they'll just, they'll, they'll be done with them. They'll take their lives, and, and that will be that. They are vicious, and they are ruthless. In a situation like that, if that's a family member of yours who is kidnapped by somebody who, there, there were some videos of them all being like huddled together and some of these terrorists around them just keeping them in a herd and these boys are pleading for rescue and rescue did come on Thursday of this week. Good news is most felt when bad news is a threat or a reality and there's only one way to respond when good news comes our way. There's only one way to respond. It's to rejoice. We rejoice when good news comes our way. A man named uh, Shuibu Kankara, his 13-year-old son named Anis Shuibu was among these kidnapped boys. And in this press release that I was reading, it says this verbatim. It says, Shuibu could not contain his joy at their release. Think about that. He could not, he would not contain his joy at the release of these boys. I am so happy, he said. We are so grateful to the governor and to all of those who worked hard to secure their 
release. Responding to good news, it doesn't take a lot of thought. It doesn't take a premeditated understanding of how I'm going to react in this situation. You don't weigh your options when good news comes your way. Joy is what bubbles and what bursts out of us at the sound or the reception of good news. We spring out of the chair, right? We wiggle in our chairs. Uh, we, 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 we exhale as the weight of the world slips away from our shoulders. And this man, Shuibu Kinkara, he was facing the loss of his son, this 13-year-old boy, and he was filled with joy at news of his rescue. Our father sent angels from, from the overflow of his joy. He sent angels to announce to nobody shepherds in a field outside of a hick town named Bethlehem that the Savior was here. And these shepherds in their joy went and found the boy king and his parents. And they all, as they're rehearsing kind of what is going on here, what the Lord is up to, the text in Luke chapter 2 says that they were filled with wonder at these things. And then Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, just a newborn at that time, uh, Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he would endure the cross for the rescue of his people. Your Father, the Son, the Spirit are filled with joy at the news and the notion and the possibility of our rescue, which they have been the architects of. They are seeking you. They want you. When your heart opens to them through the Spirit who's already at work in you, heaven, the Scriptures tell us, rejoice. The heavens rejoice when we open our hearts to our king. The situation that humanity is in, apart from Jesus Christ, is dire. It's a dire situation. We're helpless to reset our relationship with God, and we need intervention. And so what we don't need is to do better and try harder. What we don't need is just to follow the law more and to read our Bible and pray more, though those are good, um, those, those are, are good things that we practice to kind of stay in the lane of grace. What we need is someone who is qualified to come from the outside, who has power and has authority and has skill and ability to liberate us. That's what humanity needs. And so Watson is, Isaac Watson, his very first line of this song, this hymn, he gives a fact to our heads that leads our hearts to joy. This song, Joy to the World, it's a song of praise. It's not just relegated to Christmas once a year. It's a song of exultation. This long-expected king has come, past tense, and is here to rule the hearts of his people. And this is no generic and nameless and faceless God. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the historical Jesus. He really has lived, who comes with a message in his mouth to all people at all times saying, repent. Repent, turn from your former way of life and turn to me who promises you a new life. He is calling us to turn from our former way of life and to turn repeatedly to him. At the news here that God has a face and that God has flesh and at the news that he's not come to condemn the world, John chapter three tells us 
but rather to save the world through the substitutionary life and death, resurrection and ascension of him, of the Lord, there's only one proper response for us. It's to open our heart to the king and to rejoice, to let some of that exhale out, to let some of that smile widen on your face, to let some of the fist bumps out of your hands connect with another person around you. Uh, In the moment of rescue, the most sane response is to be open to your rescuer. The most sane response in a moment of rescue is to be open to your rescuer. Like picture a scene where somebody is in water and they're drowning. Maybe this is too close to home for you. But when a a rescuer comes out to a person in open water, the person in open water, if they have their wits about them, their work is to hang on. Their work is to cooperate. Their work is to let the rescuer do the work. That's the work of the one being rescuer, uh, rescued is to relent. Um, those who know they need rescue, uh, they're open to it. Like these, Niger- these Nigerian boys who were rescued by these, um, these specialist forces, Nigerian forces, they weren't fighting their rescuers and they weren't giving their rescuers advice on how they should be doing things. They were following them. They were following them. Those being rescued have loads of room in their hearts for their rescuers. And one of the leading emotions that comes, it, it comes into play in a moment of rescue is gratitude. And therefore joy. Because gratitude is a gateway to joy. So where you are, where you're struggling with joy, and you know, like, man, I, um, this is a regular conversation in our household. Um, we struggle with joy. Um, gratitude is a gateway to joy. You lack joy, the next step is to begin to look, to begin to name, to literally call out, not just in the quiet of your mind, but even like there's a, a certain power to just letting the words come out of your mouth so that you're hearing what you're saying. With There's something cognitive that happens there as we speak. Uh, these words of gratitude, these things that we're grateful for that begin to reorient and shift our perspective. Gratitude is a gateway to joy. The second line, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns is this proclamation, joy to the earth, joy to all of creation. The Savior is reigning, meaning he's ruling. The song goes, let all their songs or the songs of men employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. This line, this verse is about joy being announced to creation. And so this rescuer isn't just a one-time rescuer who then leaves us on our, our, on our own, but this rescuer, Jesus, is also a savior who stays with us, consistently present. And so this rescuing savior brings us in and then rules and reigns. As hard as it is to believe, that's what Jesus Christ is doing at this very moment. He's reigning right now in flesh, The God-man is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, which means that he's ruling and he's reigning. He has dominion over, 
He's authoritative over the details of your life, the details of the circumstances all around you. He is present. And your, whether or not you believe that has no bearing on the truth of it. In the same way that if I, be, if I don't believe the sun is hot and the moon is cold, that doesn't really change the fact that they are. He is ruling and reigning over all things right now. Uh, and Scripture teaches us that he's not only promised redemption to us, he's not only promised to turn the hearts of men and women around, he's not only promised redemption to those who live in the house, but he's promised redemption to the house and to the ground under the house. What I mean by that is he's promised redemption actually beyond just humanity, but to all of creation. Our theology needs a big view of what God is up to in the world. It needs, our, our theology needs a big and robust view of what salvation actually is. We've talked about this in Gospel Basics uh, this summer, but redemption is not only for people. The good news of Jesus doesn't just come to change people. The good news of Jesus will eventually leak out and rearrange the entire earth. The scriptures teach at the end of Revelation, the last book in your New Testament, that Jesus will come bringing the new heavens and the new earth. The, the reality of his reign comes to transform our hearts, but it also comes to transform creational reality. If your view of what salvation is is small, your worship is going to be small. If your view of what salvation is, if it's small, then the outcome of your worship will be small. But when we begin to realize that salvation is not just about what we believe in our heads, it's not only about that. It's not just about the transformation that gets worked in our hearts, but that God will also transform all of creation. Our rejoicing and therefore our worship grows more robust, doesn't it? When we see, when we begin to realize that the scope of what Jesus is promising to his people is way different than just helping you live a better life. Like it's, it's beyond that in big, big ways. Whenever we lay hold of a, a bigger, more robust view of God and his work in our world, the scope of our worship expands. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a couple of men's discipleship cohorts going right now. And one of the books that we're reading in December is a book called Knowing God by a, theolo a theologian who's recently passed away named J.I. Packer. This book is dense and it, and it covers the attributes of who God is. This book speaks of what God is like and how he rules and and touches on his authority or his sovereignty, his goodness, his mercy. And every guy who I have talked to who is reading this book this month, as they begin to tell me what they're learning or just relay what they're learning, um, the look in the eyes and the pitch of the voice changes. Like there's an intensity that they begin to speak of that this book is just helping them see a bigger God than they imagined was there in front of them. And so his book is masterfully expanding our view of God, and therefore it's expanding our rejoicing in our worship. It's expanding our gratitude. Verse 3, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. He, Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Now, the, the upbeat tempo of this song can kind of obscure or mask the third verse here because the topic is sin and sorrow. 
Uh, fact of life under the sun for us is that our natural inclinations are opposed to God since the moment that our uh, first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and walked their own way and chose their own way. And ever since then, all of humanity, every person in this room and every person who has ever lived have chosen our own way. Our natural inclinations, our knee-jerk, right-out-of-bed-in-the-morning responses are typically in opposition to God. That's just the posture that we, that we began with and that is very natural to us. And we can, um, we can stand, we have great opportunity to, to learn to interrogate and to learn to question uh, our motives in most of the situations that we find ourselves in because of that reality. So, for example, I'll give you an example out of my own um, out of my own life, when someone uh, speaks uh, poorly of me, why is it that nine times out of 10, my initial reaction is anger and defensiveness? At the moment of criticism, why is it that my initial reaction is anger and defensiveness? Because internally with me, I'm believing in that moment, I'm convinced, in fact, in that moment, and therefore out of the overflow of the heart, my mouth starts speaking that I'm alone. That it's, 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 it's upon me because I'm alone that I need to defend myself. I need to prove myself in the sight of these people. Because at a heart level, I, I believe that there is no one available to defend me. And I must be defended. And therefore, the inner lawyers within my heart and my head rise up and begin to make their arguments. And so at a heart level, my own defensiveness is not about being just. It's not about wanting the truth to be known in a situation. The motivation that's actually at play internally in me is motivated by my sense of worth being in what you or what they, or what those people think of me than in what my Savior says of me. And so quickly I'm forgetting what he says, and I'm quickly trying to manage what another person is saying to prove to myself that I'm okay, which is just more proof that I need to rehearse the good news of Jesus Christ. Because as I rehearse the good news of what Jesus says about me, regardless of whether I'm guilty or not guilty, um, I can begin to live open-hearted to him. And as, as, as a result, I can begin being honest with the criticism, or I can begin being honest with uh, something that I have done wrong, that I'm just wanting, I'm not wanting to admit, but, but I need to admit. And so it's through my open-heartedness to Jesus in that moment and my willingness to rehearse what he says about me that, I, that I'm actually encouraged, the courage is put in me to begin to, uh, to begin to accept and deal with and be open to what is being said. Now, another fact of life uh, is that sorrow, so um, this verse says, let no more sins and sorrows grow. Uh, a fact of life is that sin, uh, that, that sorrows rather seem to be in growth mode. Like we don't have any shortage of things that are causing us sorrow. I think this year is a perfect example of that. There's just a lot of sorrow for a number of reasons. Big, small, doesn't matter. Still another fact of life is that frustration 
abounds. That's the line that Isaac Watts is getting at when he's saying, let no more thorns infest the ground. Frustrations abound. Here's a fact about frustration. Frustration is always the result of unmet expectations. Anytime you find yourself frustrated at someone or something, it's a result of expectations that you have held that have not been met. Right or wrong, that's not the case. The expectations haven't been met, and that's where the frustration comes from. So this last Wednesday, we got new tires for our Yukon. And I didn't really want to get new tires, but we had a slow leak, and they checked it, and then there was a number of other things, and took it to one place, took it to another place. They said, yeah, but they were trying to, you know, get a little shysty with you. Here's what we can do for you. And so had these new tires put on. Well, right across the street from the tire shop is a coffee shop. So I'm, it's like 2.30 in the afternoon, drop the car off. They say they can get it done. I go over to the coffee shop. I just like get into my work. I'm just wanting to write this message. I'm just wanting to focus for a little bit. And uh, this gal, this nice gal like comes up to me. I've got my earbuds in and she's like, sorry, we're closed. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Why are you closing at three o'clock in the afternoon? So I pick all my stuff up and I go over to the tire shop and I like kind of unload and start working again. And then the car's done. So like interruption, interruption. You can like, there's just frustrations. This is just first world stuff, but I'm just feeling frustrated, right? So I'm like, okay, I've got an hour and 15 minutes left at this point. I'm gonna just run down to another coffee shop that I like to go to, get on the internet and I'm gonna finish what I need to finish there. And I drive by and it's dark, Like there are people sitting inside, but there are no lights on. And then I'm looking around and there's no lights anywhere. And the entire section of that city, the power went out. If you lived in Coeur d'Alene Place, you know, the power went out. So I just like drive to a parking lot, turn on the dome light because it's December. And by four o'clock, it's dark outside, right? So you can hear and see my frustration even right now. I I wanted things to go a different way. And if we're honest, this is all day, every day. This is just constant. A constant temptation is to let our frustrations in the world overtake our joy in Christ. That's our constant frustration. To let the frust- the, the, the constant temptation is to let the frustrations that we have in the world and with the world overtake our joy in Christ. Now, Watts speaks to each of these things. Let no more sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He's addressing these things with this big picture promise of Jesus Christ in mind, because what he says is that he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, meaning as far as the curse has infested this life. So right now, wherever you find yourself, wherever you have unmet expectations. You want things to go a particular way, but they're not. There is a truth available to you in the good news of Jesus that can confront your frustrations and realign your perspective, that can get your mind off or or at least get your eyes lifted from here up to him. Um, from my tires example, like I could have let that ruin my day. I was spending money. I didn't want to spend. We had the money. It was fine. Spending money. didn't want to spend, but inconvenienced by some of the events of that afternoon, I could have let that ruin my day. I could have just in a huff, like put it all away, put it off to the next day. But the Holy Spirit in that moment, he began to remind me how plentifully he has been providing for my family this year. And just so I'm clear, I didn't start thinking of those things because I'm awesome. That's like, that's not where my mind was. My mind was focused on the frustrations and boop, 
boop, these like thoughts start downloading where I'm like, I recognize in that moment, it was the spirit of God speaking to me. Somebody external to me was, re- was shifting my perspective. Left to myself, it would not have gotten shifted. He began to remind me how plentifully he's been providing for my family this year, not just materially, but in friendships. And I began to just like think, my mind just began to wander. Uh, and then uh, the moment that my head began to look above the suck of this situation in my afternoon uh, to all of the unearned favor that he has been providing to me this year, joy began its work and my perspective began to shift. This last line in the song, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This is where we'll end. But the Savior, he rules the world. This is what we need to understand this Christmas. There are all of the wonderful aspects of Christmas coming at us. Let's celebrate them. Let's use those, whether it's the tree, whether it's the smells, whether it's the songs, whether it's the people in our life, whether it's the food we're enjoying, whatever it is, let's enjoy those things as gifts from God. Let's credit him with providing them to us. Let's let that gratitude lead our eyes to him and let's let that gratitude lead the way to joy. This Savior, he reigns. So let's celebrate Christmas. But now on a serious note, I want us to, I want us to apprehend this truth. This Savior's reign, it's full of truth and grace, which means in some ways that his reign is both salty and sweet. He rules over all that he has created with truth and with grace. John's gospel, the apostle John would write in John 1, Jesus became flesh. He was eternally spirit at the right hand of the Father. He descended, he was conceived in Mary's womb, and he was born as the God-man. He took on flesh at the moment of his birth. He became flesh and he dwelt, meaning he lived among us. And this apostle, he writes, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his unorthodox ways. We've heard his teaching. We've seen the miracles. We've seen the power. We've witnessed it. He's unlike any human being who has ever lived. There's two teams, us and him. That's it. He is full of truth and grace. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. This is a unique kind of glory. And then John writes, he's full of truth and grace. Not 50-50, not 70-30, 100-100. He's filled to the brim with truth. He's filled to the brim with grace. And then John writes, for from his fullness, from the fullness of who this guy is, unlike anybody, we have all received now from him. He just comes bringing us benefit. He's providing for us. He's teaching us. He's showing us the way. He's proving he's the Messiah. And from him, we have received grace upon grace, unearned thing, unearned benefit upon unearned benefit upon unearned benefit upon unearned benefit. And then John would go on to say, the law was given through Moses, teaching us right from wrong, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross, is where we most vividly experience the salty and the sweet of the Savior. The cross is where we most experience the horror of our sin, and the beauty of his mercy. They converge at the cross. The cross is where we see the justice of God poured out on sin 
and where, where we see the love of God poured out for sinners. We cannot afford to minimize or to forget the cross. We are a Christ, we are a cross-centered people because we are a Christ-centered people. The cross is as essential to your following Jesus as a driver's license in the airport. It's central. You need it. I need it. Why? Because the cross of Christ is this intersection of truth and grace that we have fallen woefully short and that God is going to provide for us in the life of his son. The cross is where justice is poured out for our sin and where his sacrificial love demands that we go free. Let me say it differently. It's where justice is poured out on the cross at Jesus, upon Jesus, for your sin. And where his sacrificial love demands that you go free. Not plural. Yes, plural. But that's not how I'm saying it right now. You, individual, personal. This is a quote from The Cross-Centered Life. Um, The author writes, the cross was the centerpiece of Paul's theology. It wasn't merely one of Paul's message, it was the message. He taught about other things as well, but whatever he taught was always derived from and related to the foundational reality that Jesus Christ died so that sinners would be reconciled to God and forgiven by God. Only those who are aware of God's wrath are amazed by God's grace. Only those who are aware of God's wrath are amazed by God's grace. The personal desolation, think about this, the personal desolation that Jesus is experiencing on the cross is what you and I should be experiencing. But instead, Jesus is bearing it. And he's bearing it alone. Why? He's alone so that we might never be alone. He has been cut off so that we might be brought in. He is our perfect substitute. Relationship with God is not possible through your effort. Relationship with God is possible through grace alone, by your faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how it is made possible. So as this reality is processing in your mind right now, you're processing it, trying to get your head around it. Do I believe it? How can I apply it? Let it flow into the low ground of your heart. Let it produce something in you. The best response available for you and I in a moment like this, even though like the message of the cross is a heavy message, when we start to talk about sin, that's a heavy thing, the best possible response is gratitude for how he has stepped in for us. He's seen you and he's called you, and he's stepped in for you. And if our response is gratitude, gratitude will always lead to joy. Gratitude is the gateway to our joy. So remember when I asked what comes out of you if I witness joy in you? It could be tears, fist bumps, shout, hollering, Silence as you're in awe of God's goodness, a smile from edge to edge on your face. You do you. Whatever it is, you do you. But joy is here, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
And so as we sing this song in response, as we go to the table to partake in communion, there's a response of God's people. Our gratitude is meant to lead us to joy. So what does that look like for you? How do you respond? As awkward as you might feel in the room, how do you respond? Joy has come. His name is Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. That's the reality that we celebrate on Friday morning. Father, we love you. Our hearts are searching for how to respond right now. Some of us are in turmoil. Some of us are elated. There's a varying response in the room. So Holy Spirit, would you work in us to free us, to liberate us, to be able to express our hearts to you, to express gratitude to you, to see the things around us that we are so grateful for, to begin to inventory the things around us that we just don't see anymore, but we want to see them again. What are the ways that you provide for your people? A primary way is by drawing us to yourself through the life of your Son and the power of the Spirit at work within us, sanctifying us. So we give you thanks this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.